The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Earth's moon may not be alone. After more than half a century of speculation and controversy, Hungarian astronomers and physicists say they have finally confirmed the existence of two Earth-orbiting moons made entirely of dust. With the details, we're joined by one of our favorite guests, Frank Florian, the Director of Planetarium and Space Sciences at the TELUS World of Science. Hey, Frank. Hello. How are you today? Good. good. Frank, you're, you're the guy when it comes to this. So we'll deal with the moons because I want to get to UFOs. So... <laughs> Are these, these are called, what are they called, moon moons? Yeah, what, so what's the deal on these moons? We have three moons now? Well, it's not exactly that uh, simple. It, it, these things really wouldn't be considered like a moon like our own moon. You're not going to see like uh, other things up in our sky like uh, you would in Star Wars with Tatooine having you know, multiple moons or suns <laughs> and things like that. Now, this, this is basically just uh, dust clouds that are found in particular regions um, around the Earth-Moon system, uh, they're called Lagrange points, and they're sort of stable areas where the Moon-Earth gravitational potential energy, it kind of balances. It's sort of a balancing point of gravity between worlds, and um, in these regions you can find that things become rather stable, and so you can actually get material, dust material left over from the formation of the solar system, uh, you know, uh, cometary dust, things like that, over time accumulating in these regions because it's sort of like... uh, you know, a balancing point where things are can go there and it just uh, stays sitting there for a while. So do they get caught in our orbit? Is that the idea, that these big dust bunnies just <laughs> get caught in the orbit? You, you can call them something like that. Um, when we look at other planets of our solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, even the Earth, there's uh, certain regions in around the Earth's orbit, which are called Lagrange points. There's sort of these balancing points, and there's uh, one that precedes the Earth in its orbit, one that that basically follows the Earth in its orbit. A few years back in 2010, uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Martin Connors, actually discovered the first so-called Trojan asteroid. That's one of these asteroids that actually follow the Earth around in its orbit. Um, mm-hmm. They're always hard to see because they're always kind of found very close to the, the rising setting sun, so they make them very difficult to see uh, directly. And that's the same thing with these clouds. These clouds uh, that they discovered uh, that are sort of in the Earth-Moon system at the Lagrange points in the Earth-Moon system uh, are there, but they're very faint because you're not dealing with a sizable body like the Earth's real moon. You're looking at basically just, uh, you know, as you mentioned, dust bunnies that are just floating around in certain points uh, in the orbit. I think a lot of us, well, you know, for those of us who don't know much about this sort of stuff, think that um, space is just this big empty place but in fact there's dust all over the place there's all sorts of different objects there so that's that's interesting um but why does this discovery matter frank and in specifically when i was reading about it today they were talking about the future of space travel and and navigation can you do you have any insight into that well for one why do these things matter well we we know that there are these stable points in uh gravitational systems uh where you have you know, two or more bodies uh, floating around in space, the Earth, Moon, or the Earth and the Sun. Um, so we know that there's these particular stable points uh, in space where if you put a spacecraft there, it'll just kind of sit there. The James Webb Space Telescope, that should be going up uh, fairly soon. It's always been delayed for a few years, but that's going to go to something called the L2, Lagrange Point 2, which is going to be um, a balance point between the Earth and the Sun uh, a little bit further away uh, in orbit uh, from the Earth's orbit. And that, that's a point where the James Webb Space Telescope can kind of just sit there and, and orbit along with the Earth in that particular point in space. 
and uh, and that way uh, for its sensors that it's using, it'll always kind of uh, keep its uh, optical sensors away from the bright sunlight and things like that because it's an infrared telescope. So it, it's good to have these points where a spacecraft can stay stable. They don't need much energy to move around a bit, and uh, they'll just kind of sit there for a long time. Hmm. That was, makes them kind of special. For these things that they discovered in the Earth-Moon system, these... Uh, dust bunnies or this <laughs> dusty material, uh, again, that can become a hazard for astronauts if you're traveling through that region, because if you're traveling swiftly in a, in a spacecraft of some type through these points, and you've got all this uh, very small material, again, it's like, it's like that. It's like a dust cloud. Uh, you know, okay. You're looking at maybe things the size of a grain of sand, maybe a little bit bigger, maybe a little smaller. It's we don't know exactly the extent of it because it's so faint we can't discern basically what type of material is actually in there and how large the, the fragments of material are. But, again, if you're traveling with a spacecraft through there, you don't want to have these things uh, piercing the, the hull of your spacecraft, creating a breach and things like that. Mm-hmm. It would be very dangerous for the astronauts. So there's that aspect of the dangers of space travel going through those regions. But then again, there's the ability to park spacecraft in those regions and uh, make them quite useful, like the James Webb Space Telescope. Hmm. All right, so now we're at the point I wanted to ask you about. So first of all... We need help, some help with this one, yeah, Frank. Help me pronounce this uh, Hawaiian uh, asteroid. Uh, I say Hawaiian, it's not Hawaiian, but it, it was... It, oh, yeah, the Mau Mau. I can't even pronounce oh, it. Mau Mau. We'll go with yeah, your yeah. pronunciation. I like it. So tell us about this, because uh, we did a story last week, briefly touched upon two Harvard... Uh, researchers that were publishing a paper on, I think, the following Tuesday, so it would have been, uh, what, last week on Tuesday, I suppose, uh, that, I don't want to say theorized, but put out the the possibility that this was something traveling from another, uh, you know, possibly an alien craft. So <laughs> from that point, go. Well, okay, that, that's, a, that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I read the thing, too. They thought it might have been like an alien solar sail or something like that. Uh, the, the one thing that, that is for sure, that this object definitely was interstellar. It didn't come from our own solar system or the confines of the gravitational influence of our solar system, our sun and the other bodies. It came beyond our solar system, so you know it's sort of an interloper, something coming from outside our solar system. And the strange size of the object, the elongation of it, uh, was very different for asteroids and things like that, other bodies that we know of out there, which are more spherical or potato-shaped in thing. This one was very long, elongated. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there was always a little bit of an issue about, okay, well, what could this be? It, it doesn't have the characteristics of, you know, a so-called typical asteroid. Um, and so, you know, there was some speculation about that. And, of course, uh, get on the Internet and <laughs> a lot of people saying, it's an alien spacecraft, you know, well... <laughs> You know, no, I don't think so. I, I personally still think it's just a space rock, uh, a derelict uh, interloper of our solar system. Sure, it's shaped strangely. Come on, Frank. The, the, the Harvard uh, <laughs> scientists. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Come I, on. I, I, I hate to put a wrench in this, but you know, the Harvard <laughs> scientists actually did say it was like a solar sail, or there were some discrepancies in its path through the yeah. uh, solar system. It was traveling very swiftly as well. That you know, I I don't know. <laughs> well, it's funny because you mentioned solar sail, and I saw one a scientist weighing in. I read a bunch. I, I went down the rabbit hole on this last mm-hmm. week. It was just so interesting. But somebody uh, compared a craft from another um, solar system being powered by a solar sail, uh, saying, uh, suggesting that well, if they had that kind of technology, that that's like bringing a rowboat over here. They would have. <laughs> and I assume a solar sail simply means it absorbs the energy from the sun, and that causes it to speed up. 
pretty much. It's like, you know, the wind here on the earth with our older sail, sailing ships, you know, using the wind to actually help them go from one place to the next. Uh, this is using like a very lightweight material sheet of that, that will reflect uh, solar radiation. So as the sun puts out its solar radiation, again, electric charged particles, uh, something we call the solar wind, that uh, those particles would actually hit this particular sail and then bounce back and hence give it a little bit of putt-putt mm. kind of motion. Now, the thing is, if it is an interstellar thing, as we know the thing came from out there somewhere, again, in between the stars, uh, there isn't that much kind of solar radiation when you're really far away from a star. So the amount of impulse you'd actually get out there would be very small. However, if you could actually get the spacecraft traveling quickly uh, from our solar system or some other solar system, you know, it'll propagate, it'll go out there at that velocity unless it's acted upon by some, you know, gravitational force from some other body. So it, it'll maintain that speed for a long time. So, hmm. you know, okay. so, so is that asteroid the equivalent of a potato chip that looks like the Pope? <laughs> might be. Might yeah. Be. yeah, I'd probably say that's probably more in line with what it might be. <laughs> so, Frank, did you see the story um, from the weekend? Uh, well, it came out on the weekend, but um, about these pilots off the coast of Ireland, uh, three different uh, airliners reporting yeah. seeing multiple unidentified objects flying at them at incredible speed. Yes, I did. Yeah, and you know something? Pilots see things uh, almost on a daily basis when they're flying up there. Uh, but, but people on the ground see things, too. So, you know, th this is one that I'm, I'm sort of in the middle. I'm, I'm skeptical, but I'm also someone that wants to say we should study these particular things. Because, again, there's been so many reported sightings mm -hmm. of strange things in the sky, both by professional pilots, uh, scientists, and, of course, the general public as well. Um, so th there's so much that's been reported over the years. And, you know, we hear stories like the Roswell story and other things. And how much of that is true and how much is now been a story because it's been you know told so many times over we just don't know but uh all i can say is keep looking up there's been strange things seen in the sky i've seen a couple of things too that i can't explain and um you know that doesn't mean that it's aliens visiting us but it could be it uh, we don't know it's just you see something and then you have to try to analyze and try to figure out what it might be unfortunately in science you usually like to do experiments that you can actually then you know over again get other people to verify it with these particular sightings you know you have to be at the right place right time to see it and then it's gone and there's no way to really duplicate it so because we don't know what they are and things like that and not that many people see them at any one given time uh, it makes it difficult to really assess what these things are but yeah the universe is pretty big uh, i wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't say that you know other individuals from somewhere else out there in the universe aren't coming here but when you take a look at our little speck of the Earth and our solar system and the immensity of space itself, you know, why would anyone want to come here? <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I love as you're talking, because Andrew and I have had debates about this, this one uh, over and over since the time that we first started um, working together. I don't think he's a believer, and I'm one who would like to believe. Um, but just one more question for you. Um, I think one of the meteor showers is uh, happening this coming weekend. The Leonid? Leonid? That's right. It's the Leonid meteor shower. And... Um, um, any chance that we're going to see much in these parts? Well, um, the Lena Minishar is actually one that uh, its activity increases in certain years and decreases in other years. Uh, it, it goes along with the, the parent comet that leaves behind the material, and that's Temple Tuttle. And that particular comet came by into our little part of the 
the solar system back around uh, before uh, the year 2000s. And so it left all this material in its wake. And because of that, in 2000, from about 1998 to about 2003, the Leonids put on a great show for us. We saw bright fireballs and really bright meteors crossing the sky during those, uh, those years. And after that, it starts to dwindle again. And it, it, ha- takes, it has to do with this 33-year period of the, the parent comet. And so really the next really great appearance of the Leonids won't be for, well, another, what, 15 years or something mm. of that nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but, you know, you can get out there and you can look up. Uh, usually peaks around uh, November uh, 16th and 17th. So if you're outside uh, looking up, uh, you'll probably see a few, you know, meteors associated with the Leonid meteor shower. But, may- but maybe not as many as what we saw around the okay. year 2000. Hey, Frank, I got a question for you no one's ever asked you before. No, go ahead. If you have a, if one of our listeners has a child who has an interest in this, do you have a recommendation for what kind of telescope to buy mm-hmm. them or how much they should be spending on a telescope? You know, we're getting close to the Christmas season and, you know, we get a lot of people contacting us about that. What type of telescope should I buy for so-and-so who's really interested in astronomy? You know, if they don't have never used a telescope, I almost recommend getting a good pair of binoculars as a starter because it actually opens up a lot more of the universe and it's, they're simpler to use than a telescope for a lot of people. You use both eyes instead of one eye. Uh, you can scan the sky in any direction. It gives you a wide field of view and you won't see you know, the craters up close or the rings of Saturn all that well, but it still will show you a lot of the neat things in the evening sky. So my, my, uh, I always suggest to people to maybe get a good pair of binoculars first and then move on to a telescope secondly. And with telescopes, um, it, it really comes down to what you can afford and what uh, type of design telescope you want. Uh, I personally like the small portable telescopes that I can actually almost take anywhere with me. Uh, they're fairly powerful. They're lightweight. Uh, they're called schmidt Cassegrains and Maksutov Cassegrain telescopes. Um, they're a little bit more pricey than you know, the $200, $300 kind of refracting toy telescopes is what I call them. <laughs> but again, you'll see a lot more things with them, and they usually come with a clock drive, something that moves with the sky, or a computer-controlled drive that moves the telescope and keeps whatever you're looking at in the field of view. So um, I'd probably say stay away from any of the small refracting telescopes, like 2.4 inches. Uh, some of the 3-inch ones aren't too bad. But, you know, if, if, you're, if someone's really interested in astronomy, what I recommend that they do is, you know, come out to our observatory here. Uh, it's free of charge any clear Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights uh, to look at things in our evening sky. And we can show them, you know, the differences of the telescopes that we use and eyepieces and things like that. And they kind of make a decision by looking at what we have here. And we'll even have some of the smaller telescopes out there for people to use just to get a feeling of, you know, what telescope is it that they're looking for? What are their expectations? What do they expect to see through it? Uh, are they going to be traveling with it? Then you want a portable kind of uh, very usable telescope versus a long tube or a heavy tube uh, telescope. And uh, there's the care and maintenance of telescopes as well. Some telescopes are, you know, almost, once you have them, it's great, and just let them sit. And the other ones, you have to do a little bit of aligning of the optics and things like that over time. So there's a lot of different uh, hmm. things in, uh, that you need to know when you select a telescope. Uh, and I've talked to a lot of people that, you know, bought a really expensive telescope and never used it <laughs> versus someone that bought a smaller telescope and used it every day. You know, it's just, you know, how often are you going to use it and uh, when are you going to use it? When the weather gets colder, you know, a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to go outside in minus 20. Frank Florian from uh, the TELUS World of Science. Frank, always great to talk to you. Thanks for this. Well, thanks, Jalen.
Still to come on the 6.30 Chad Afternoon News, we're going to talk to the uh, Guinness Book of World Records owner of the most individual comic books. We're going to talk to him about the passing of Stan Lee. So looking forward to that. We'll do that right after the 3.30 News. Also coming up today, boy, oh boy. We have Backstreet Boys tickets, don't we? We do have Backstreet Boys tickets and... There can't be more. Michael Bublé tickets. What? What? There's a concert you'll never see together. I would pay to see that. I think that would be... Would you? Oh, yeah. Who opens for who? Oh, I think the Backstreet Boys open for Michael. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. (laughs) But I think Michael would be out there and having some fun with them, too. Sure, why not? Anyway, so we have uh, some songs you have to identify. We'll do that before 5.30 when we turn it over to the City Ford Face-Off Show. The 6.30 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 6.30 Chad.